Welcome to The Athlete and the NARP. I'm Jenna Daly, and I'm the athlete. And I'm Claire Fenton, and I'm the NARP. And if you don't know what a NARP is, then you're one too. Welcome to the seventh episode of The Athlete and the NARP. Today, we're going to be talking about athlete safety, and I know that sounds like a very general topic, and it definitely is, but Jenna and I have had a lot of different examples that we've collected and things we've noticed recently or things that have happened within the past few years in sports that fall under this umbrella. We felt that it was important to collect them and talk about them in some capacity and have them under one umbrella for an episode, so Maybe bear with us a little bit as we even try to collect our thoughts during this podcast about exactly what all of these ideas mean to us and why we think they're important. We are just excited to dive deeper into this. The way this all started, for me at least, I had thoughts about this during the Men's World Cup in Qatar that began in the winter of 2022. Qatar was controversial even before the games even started playing for a few reasons. I think the biggest one at the time was just the socio-political environment in Qatar is a little bit hostile. There are laws against LGBTQ rights and women's rights kind of going along with that. There are pretty strict laws against freedom of expression. Players were speaking out against that and not super happy with that decision already just because, again, of the political climate there. And then there were also allegations that there was some bribery that went into Qatar getting the World Cup because the calendar had to be entirely switched around to accommodate this location. Typically, the Men's World Cup is held in the summer, which works out a little bit better for the players based on their club and their normal season schedules. But Qatar, as we'll talk about even for another example later on, Qatar is extremely hot in the summer months and kind of in that time of year. And it would just kind of be not feasible for the players to be able to play healthily in that environment. So they switched the whole calendar around and moved it to the winter of 2022, where the temperatures were still hot, but low enough that it was, you know, acceptable for them to play and wouldn't be as big of a deal. But that whole moving of the schedule was definitely controversial because it has led, as we've seen now in the months and almost really the the year coming out of this World Cup, It has led to a pretty massive increase in the number of injuries that soccer players are seeing, those who played in the World Cup. Because it was moved to the winter, that that meant the World Cup fell in the middle of the season for the top leagues in soccer, like the Premier League, Serie A, La Liga, all of those, which meant that players were in the middle of their season, they had to take a break, then go play for the World Cup, and then come right back and continue in the heat of things for their clubs when it's still important to try to win games and compete for the championship at the club level as well. And so that just incredibly increased the load management for all those players. That was something that they had talked about leading up to the World Cup and advocated for, hey, can you give us more of a break? We need more time to recover after this. Like this is going to be, I mean, the World Cup is the biggest thing for soccer players. Like it's something they comes only every four years and they dream their whole lives for. So those games are incredibly important to them as well. And so, of course, they're going to go hard, give it all they have, even though, again, they're in the middle of an already trying season. Basically, FIFA didn't really accommodate them. They didn't give them the extra break that they had asked for. 
And so kind of what we've seen since then, there have been some studies that have been done on the number of injuries that have happened. An insurance group called Howden did an European football injury index report for the 2022 to 2023 year. The average number of days a player has been sidelined after an injury went from around 11.35 in October 2022 before the World Cup to 19.41 in January 2023, which is, you know, right after the World Cup. There was a 170% increase in ankle injury severity, a 200% increase in calf and shin, a 130% increase in hamstring. Those resulting injuries also had a financial impact where it actually increased the cost that Europe's top five leagues were paying to rehab these players and get them back to level, caused them a 30% increase in those costs. So there was a financial hit to the club teams as well. At these top clubs, like it's not just a minority of players, even though in the grand scheme of things, only a small number of players go to the World Cup. At the top levels, it's actually quite a significant amount of players that had to go through this. The Premier League, which is considered to be kind of the most competitive league in the world, 23.6% of players played in the World Cup. So that's like one out of every four players was going through this. The Bundesliga, which is another top league, had 15% of their players going to the World Cup. So There's a lot of people who this has affected, and nearly half of the people who played there also reported that they had extreme or increased mental fatigue because, again, they didn't get enough of a break in between the end of the World Cup and the rest of their season. The young players who are also eligible to play for the World Cup, they're increasingly playing more minutes than is necessarily healthy for them at that age. The Players Union called this, there's quote-unquote pressing danger and a threat to their health, the lack of break, adequate break. All of that to say, when you kind of look at it just from the outside, FIFA switched around the whole way that they've done the World Cup to accommodate a country with questionable political stance and allegations of labor abuse against them, so not necessarily the highest moral ground. Didn't listen to the players who were expressing that this was not a good idea, and as a result, ended up with a ton more injuries, and that's really unfortunate. Uh, I think. And when you hear that, you might be wondering, well, why would they do that? And that was my exact thought as well. When we were talking about this and Claire was telling me about this, because as you can tell, she's very passionate about soccer. And I, my knowledge is not nearly on any level close to Claire's. (laughs) And so she was explaining all this to me. And so I was wondering, well, why does FIFA cater to Qatar? And then also with the Qatar Grand Prix, which I'll give a little more details in a minute about that. But like, I also felt like they were catering to the country then. So I was like, why, why is that the case? And it's very similar to Saudi, how they're putting a lot of their money into sports as a way, almost as like a economic and political tool to bolster their international image. And so a lot of sporting events are going over there instead. So that's the country's way of increasing popularity with them and respect and increasing a positivity aspect. So I think that's really interesting. But what that really got me on was kind of like the financial aspect of it. And I was like questioning, okay, well, are leagues and countries starting to prioritize the financial gains and politics of of sports rather than thinking about the actual people that make up the sports the players the teams organizations and all that 
And to give a little context of why I started caring about this issue was definitely when Claire and I were watching the Qatar Grand Prix, which was held in October. I mean, it's after summer, but like it's still it's fairly early and still pretty hot there. Qatar, I'm pretty sure it was a night race still. Like it was it was even hosted at night. And to go back to the World Cup, weren't a lot of the games at kind of like ridiculous times because it was still so hot? Yeah, they did have a lot of the games. Part of that is probably also to accommodate when people can watch for, again, television ratings, which would Mm -hmm. be views and money. But a lot of the games were held at like 10 or 11 p.m. Qatar time. Right. So it would be in the afternoon or the morning in our time. Yeah. So I just I just thought about that because I was like, well, even the heat at that time was still really significant. And then with the Grand Prix, there was a lot of backlash afterwards because when we were watching, it was very apparent that the drivers were struggling a lot. So at that time, it was about 90 degrees Fahrenheit in the air. But then because the cars are heating up and the drivers are sweating and everything and just like creating this like pocket of warmth in the cockpit, it was actually over 140 degrees, which is insane to me. Like, I just can't even... I can't imagine that. I can't wrap my head around that. That was mind-blowing, first of all. As Claire pointed out to me that they had mandated three stops because of safety concerns, um, and it was, like, over the tires, but which, like, may have been due to the heat and the friction of that. But then Claire made a good point that when they're racing on fresher tires with those high-speed turns, which Qatar is known for, they are going under a lot more g-force and that in itself really makes it difficult and increases the likelihood of passing out or just feeling a lot more lightheaded and multiple drivers had reported like actually passing out in those turns i think lance stroll and george russell both said that i remember george russell complaining uh, over the radio about how hot it was in the cockpit and like Literally, as he's driving 200 miles an hour, putting his hands outside the car just to cool off his hands because they were burning. I remember Alonzo asking, jokingly, but probably kind of seriously, if they could pour a bucket of water on him over the next pit stop because he was so overheating. And then there was one retirement because of illness. Logan Sargent had to retire because he wasn't feeling good. I think he was sick before that, too, but then just the heat was really unbearable for him. A couple of the drivers checked into the hospital after the race. And then even in the cool down room afterwards, Max Verstappen and Oscar Piastri were joking about needing wheelchairs to move. And I remember them just laying there. And while that became a meme, it was also really, it was really scary to see because these are like, quote unquote, like top athletes of the world, like Mm -hmm. top drivers of the world. And they were struggling so much. And it was really difficult. So there was a ton of backlash, I remember, on Twitter and a lot from the fans. But then also from people who were racing as well, too. A lot of the drivers said it was just too much. It was just unbearable. Like, I think a lot of them were questioning, is this worth it? I thought that was interesting that, like, the FIA was willing to cater to Qatar and have a race over there knowing how hot it was, but still not really... Or not taking, caring enough to yeah, do the not research taking, like, precaution. Into how hot it might yeah, be. exactly. And I guess the good thing, like people were talking about this after, the good thing is that for the twenty twenty four season, that race is scheduled for December, which I think will definitely be a little bit better, a couple of months. But I imagine it'll still be really hot, and that's definitely still a real concern for drivers. And I think especially with F one or anytime you're driving, 
a vehicle like that. It's really scary to hear drivers say they were struggling not to faint while they're driving a car 200 miles an hour. That's not good to hear. You don't want that at all. I mean, people have died in this sport. It's not common, but it does happen. So to hear that multiple drivers were like vomiting or almost passing out or feeling like they couldn't go on and having to go to the hospital afterward and they're trying to just physically stay conscious while also trying to compete and drive this car, that's really irresponsible for the FIA, which is the governing body, to put them in that position to the point where they have to try to tolerate that extreme of a situation and still compete. I remember seeing a video of Lance Stroll struggling to get out of his car and then it was right next to an ambulance too. Like he really only had to walk 10 to 15 feet, but he could barely even make it to there. And when he got there, he basically collapsed on their door because he was so sick from driving. And I remember watching the race and being like, wow, they're really struggling. And then I saw the tweets and I'm like, wow, people are really not happy. But then I saw that clip and I was like, whoa, that's not great. And that was like jarring to actually see how affected he was by that. And for people who haven't watched a race before, you can hear the driver's radio during the race. That's something they put on the broadcast so that you can listen in to what they're saying when they're communicating with the rest of their team. And to hear Logan Sargent's radio over the course of the race was really heartbreaking. It was sad. He was, I think, communicating to them. They were asking if he was okay. And he was like, no, I can do this. Don't worry, I have it. And for him, it was, he's new to F1 this year. He didn't have the greatest season. He was really fighting the whole time to prove that he deserved this seat in F1 that he's worked for his whole life, that he needs to be one of 20 drivers. So he has this massive incentive to continue the race and not retire to show that he deserves this seat more than probably anybody else on the grid, honestly. And to hear him saying, no, I got this, I can do this. And then in turn to hear his team manager say, it's okay if you need to retire. Like, there's no shame in it. We want to take care of you. Like that whole exchange was really hard to listen to. And it's, Really amazing that Williams, the team he drives for, supported him and put his physical health over him finishing the race. But that's not a situation that any of them should have to be in. That point of him feeling like he has to keep going and prove himself and things, that kind of reminds me, this is a like a total transition, but it really reminds me of the neck guard issue going on. I guess not so much issue, but I guess kind of like discourse. In the NHL, people might not be familiar, but there was in October, late October, there was a death of a former Pittsburgh Penguin player, Adam Johnson, who I'm sure, Claire, you probably saw that before I did, just because she's a Penguins fan. He was actually, he died because of a laceration in his neck by an opposing player's skate, which of course, being a former NHL player prompted a discussion of whether neck guards should be required in all leagues or the NHL, kind of what's going on with that. And there's been a lot of hesitancy and stubbornness, definitely in the NHL for as, I don't know, as far back as I can remember, because growing up with my brother playing hockey, like it, this isn't a new debate. I've definitely heard this before. And I know that before that, I think some of his leagues required neck guards and people wore them. Some didn't, but, and it wasn't really enforced, but it, it has been a thing. This just kind of like ramped it up to the next stage to actually be talking about the NHL. But I found this quote by broadcaster Seth Bennett, 
from CNN, and he said, I think there is a machismo within ice hockey where you're seen as being something less if you choose to wear more protective equipment, which I could totally I could totally see that, especially in hockey. It's not supported by fans either. Oddly enough, people are, are really critical of neck guards for being ugly and like ruining uniforms, which to me, I really don't think so. You can literally match the color to the uniform, but I digress. <laughs> Players say that they're bulky or uncomfortable. And now there's been new technology and brands creating undershirts with neck protectors built into them. So it's a lot easier to use them. I guess I'm really glad that this conversation is a thing now and that players are starting to understand that it's okay if you don't look the coolest when you're playing. And it's like, if you're going to be in these situations, let's protect ourselves as much as possible. Like this is important. I know that there's been a lot of NHL players who are, when they start to wear them, they're like, I'm thinking about my family and about my kids now. I'm not just thinking about getting the puck in, on the ice and putting myself into the situation like I'm actively taking these precautions. So I've I've liked to see that and I've liked to see that USA hockey currently recommends it. I know that I know like my brother's team requires it now and stuff and like that's that's good to see because I remember I think someone actually in one of his leagues did actually pass away from the same incident and while it's not common it's very jarring to hear about it's been good to see that it's starting to become a cool thing (laughs) to wear a neck guard and that like nhl players are outspoken about it and supporting it and one interesting point that i think jenna brought up when we were talking about this was the halo in f1 which is a device that they've kind of put on the top of the kind of where the driver sits, kind of on top of that seating area, that basically protects them from accidents. It gives them a little bit of an extra buffer and an extra place for, like, that to make contact with the ground instead of, like, your head and your body, which could be lethal. And that was something that didn't exist until fairly recently. And when it when it was added, people were actually very opposed to it. And Toto Wolf, for example, who's the team principal at Mercedes on an interview, he said, when this came out, I was against it. I thought it was ugly and I wasn't supportive of it. And later in, in one of the most recent F1 seasons, that halo actually basically saved Lewis Hamilton's life because a car came on top of his car and the tire went over the halo instead of Lewis's head. And he's like, and it said it took kind of something like that for Toto to be like, wow, I see why this is I see why we needed this now, and I'm glad we have it. I'm so glad it was there to protect him. But again, it's one of those things where there's kind of concerns about, right, the ugliness of the car, this isn't the way we do things, or this is an extreme sport, we shouldn't need them. But in the grand scheme of things, if we're talking about somebody getting gravely injured or dying, there's just not always a lot of foresight into these things. And I was reading an article about Adam Johnson's death from The Guardian, and the author said, the uncomfortable truth is that in sport, these sort of rules only change because it is already too late. And I think that that is very true, for sure. And I think it's unfortunate that that seems to be the view that people, organizations are kind of adopting when it comes to this thing. I mean, like I said with the World Cup, I mean, FIFA has the power to say, no, you don't get a break. No, you have to go on. No, you have to compete, expecting them to go out there like robots and just perform at the highest level for nine months straight and see no issues and not really care about the consequences of that, to be frank. 
even when players are speaking out and asking for less. They also have the power to mandate the opposite way and say, no, you need to take precautions. No, you need to slow down. No, we need to move this to a time of the year when it's more comfortable for you. They have that power. So it's up to them to kind of make decisions that are in the best interest of the athletes and not for these other incentives or afraid of what how people might think or if it looks cool or if if people that have the money aren't happy about it. I think just oftentimes athlete safety gets prioritized a little bit too far down the list when it comes to these types of things. And it results in people literally dying sometimes or even getting injured, like adding a week or so onto somebody's injury. That's a that's a long time if that's the average increase in people getting hurt, if they're out for a whole week longer than normal. And in the grand scheme of their career, if they have a serious injury like that's that's due to just wear and tear, which could have been preventable or more easily avoided, that's unfortunate as opposed to a freak accident. Something else that we've talked about, and I remember being really excited when I first heard about this, was the Nike with Nike cleats that were created specifically for female soccer players. And we've talked about this a little bit separately before even really thinking about this episode or anything. But I remember being really excited about that because I actually felt like that was being fairly proactive. I mean, it's still as a result of doing research and finding that female athletes are more prone to ACL tears and injuries because soccer cleats are typically unisex or made for men. They're not altered at all for women. But people are finding out that women actually do need different support in their cleats and things. And the part for for me that I'm I'm excited about this, but then the other part for me is questioning why did it take so long? And I was saying to Claire that it might honestly be because women's sports are gaining a lot of traction and that now people are actually feeling like they want to financially invest in them. And so I think that's an important point to think about like it's kind of it's a little sad to me that it's because women's sports viewership and like the interest in following them has been increasing so rapidly recently that this is the timeline of those changes and improvements but nonetheless I am really excited that this is the direction that people are going in and tailoring these shoes and cleats towards women. I think this is important. It's a good step forward. Definitely. And I think the one that is most, I would say close to home, is the ACL injuries, which apparently women are two to eight times more likely to tear their ACL than men are, which is a crazy number for an injury like that. I mean, that injury easily sidelines you for nine months, maybe even a year. Like It's a, a devastating injury. And for women to be that much more likely to have it is definitely a problem. Some of it's due to biology, but that's I feel like that number is way too high. And I know personally, I can think of right now, I watched four to five girls tear their ACL while I was playing basketball or soccer in high school. Over my course of my four years there, I witnessed four to five women tear their ACLs. And that's not even other people that you know I know of tangentially who have done it. But I watched it happen four to five times in front of me. And along with the financial component, which kind of ties into this, I think it's just now we're at the time where we're seeing women who played sports in college or at a high level 
being represented in companies and at executive levels and stuff. This Boston College grad, Natalie White, designed this basketball shoe. The brand is called Moolah Kicks, and it has a bunch of features of it that make it better for women's feet. So narrower heels, lifted arches, slimmer widths, shallow lateral sides, for example. All these aspects fit the feet better and in turn help lower the risk of injury in your leg. And that's something that, I mean, just to be honest, that's something like a man would never think to to do because they don't have that experience of playing in shoes that aren't designed for them. And so sometimes all it takes is just a woman like that deciding this is the initiative. And I think just, again, with the rise of women's sports and there being more money invested in them, now there's a lot more female athletes who are in this position to be able to do something like that and start their own company and kind of pave the way for other women to have a better experience. There should, I feel like there should be more energy being put into looking at why, and I know there is energy being invested in it right now, but there should be more energy being put into finding solutions for these injuries. I just even saw recently in the last week, TCU is down to, they're holding open tryouts for their women's basketball squad because they don't have enough healthy players to play. And part of that is because their star point guard tore her ACL. Sam Kerr, who's one of the best soccer players in the world, she plays for Australia and Chelsea. She just tore her ACL in practice just a couple weeks ago or last week. So it's even happening to women at like super high levels. And is that some of that wear and tear? Is some of that because they don't have the right equipment? Like theoretically, they're playing at really good programs. They're playing at really great clubs. They should have all the support they need. But maybe there just needs to be more invested into this as opposed to just like, well, women are just more likely to tear their ACL. That's just how it is. That's the end of that. At the end of the day, all professional athletes are human. They're all human beings and they deserve to be treated as a human being with respect to their physical safeties. I think it's really important for administrations to be held accountable for that safety and to be putting in practices that protect their players and other people that are involved in the sports. Because without, I mean, without the athletes, you don't have the sport and you don't, if you're thinking from profit perspective, you don't have those profits that come with the sport. So I think it's the it should be the most important part of an organization or a league to be protecting their athletes. It's kind of a joke within the NBA. I don't know how closely, you know, you follow that, but it's kind of a joke within the NBA, the load management. They play an 82 game season and there have been times where players have sat out, let's just say 10 to 20 of those games, like their star players sit out like 10 to 20 of those games just to rest because and save it up for games when it's important or if they know they're going to make it to the playoffs, save it up for times when they're going to make it to the playoffs. And NBA, it's been a big issue and they've actually had to find people and restructure the way that they do the season and try to add all these other incentives for players not to sit out in order to play the full season and so it's kind of a joke within within the NBA about the load load management and you know complaints about oh in the old days like players would have been able to play all 82 this generation is soft blah 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 like well is this generation softer they just trying to look out for themselves as well and why aren't people listening well why aren't people listening because they want the money and revenue that comes from a full 82 game season but even Kylian Mbappe just recently who plays for PSG and is one of the best soccer players in the world plays for France at the national level. He just spoke about this recently that soccer as a whole is moving toward an NBA, he called it like an NBA style format where they're moving toward 70 game season. And he's like, personally, I'm okay with playing all that. But he said, you can't expect us to be playing at a high level 
every single day if that's what you want us to do. Like, cool if that's it, but, like, things are probably going to change because I can't play at the level that I want to play for 70 games straight. Like, that's just not going to work. So, like Jenna said, it's about these leagues finding that balance between what's best for them and what's best for their athletes and prioritizing what's best for the athletes or finding a solution for both of them that makes sense in a way that people don't have their safety compromised and aren't being pushed to injury and aren't being pushed to mental fatigue, but still allows the league to flourish and put on a good show for the fans who ultimately are disappointed if they pay $500 in advance for a ticket to see Steph Curry play against LeBron, for example, and then neither of them end up playing that game because they feel that they're too exhausted and they have to load manage. So it's not good for anybody, I guess, long story short, when athletes' concerns aren't taken seriously. For this week's Fun Friday, I'm returning the favor to Claire, and I will be quizzing her this time. Yay! (laughs) So credit to Dog Mondays on TikTok for this information and for the inspiration. I went through their page for probably an hour one day just for fun because I enjoy these questions so much. So how it's going to work, I have five questions lined up for Claire and she will have one minute for each question. So it'll have to do with the big four sports leagues. So the MLB, the NHL, the NFL, and the NBA. And it'll have to do with the team names or their logos and where they're located, too. So shouldn't be too hard. I tried to pick the ones that weren't terrible, but I think they increasingly get a little bit harder each time. Okay. So I think I've definitely seen some of these on TikTok and I've actually wondered, like, oh, how would I do with that? So I guess we're we're about to see. Yes. So let's dive right in. Can't wait. Okay, question one. What NFL logo is the only one that faces toward the left? Oh, wow. Okay. Wow, that's crazy. I feel like, is it, well, not the not the Rams. Nope. No, because they, no. I'm also not like a super visual learner, so... But we'll see if I can think of this. Okay, so maybe we started with the most difficult one. That's okay. <laughs> That's okay, though. It's not the... No, it's not the Vikings. I'm just thinking of nope. saying them out loud as I know that they're not it. It's not the Vikings. It's not the Patriots. It's not the Dolphins. It's not It's not the Ravens, is it? No. No. It's in the NFC. I don't know how much that's going to help me, to be honest. East. I don't know how that's, I don't know the divisions okay. like, by name. You have what, 10 seconds. What part of the country is it left or right of the middle? <laughs> right. Awesome. It's a state you're very familiar with. Is it the Eagles? It is the Eagles. Okay, I see it now. I see it now in yep. my head. Okay. I know. Yeah. We got there. Okay, maybe we started with a tough one, but that was the only, the only logos one. Okay, so. good. The others might you might do better with. Hopefully that'll help. But not bad, not bad. Okay. The second one is can you name the five sports teams that start with the letters C B? 
state or city C name B. Oh, like, like Chicago Bears. Yes, that's one of okay. them. So Chicago Bears, Chicago Bulls. I'm like trying to think of what other states state start or places or states start with C. There's Carolina, California. You have one in the NHL and then two in the NFL. I'm enjoying this, even though I'm not like, I'm not Colorado. No. It's also hard because like B is like not not like a popular mascot either, which I guess is why there's only five of them. You're past the time limit. Yeah, I can't. So time to save you. I I was going to get rid of the time limit, but I don't know if I can't even think of a place that starts with C. Well, you missed one Chicago. Chicago Bulls, Chicago Bears, Chicago Blackhawks. Yes. Should have stuck there for one more. <laughs> yes. And then you missed Cincinnati Bengals. Cincinnati. And then Cleveland Browns. Oh, they were all right there. Yes. They were. Dang. Cincinnati and Cleveland. Yeah. That one's on me. Yeah. Oh, and I forgot to clarify. The Jets and the Giants count under New York for everything. Okay. Even though, like, they play in Jersey and whatever. Gotcha. They're New York. Which states only have one of the big four sports teams? There's four states. Okay, cool. Not New York, <laughs> even though we just nope. talked about that. Tennessee? No. No, Nashville has multiple, yeah. Yeah. One's in the Northeast, one's in the Midwest. I was going to say, like, I was trying to think of, I was literally thinking of both of those places, but I can't even think of what, like, the and team is. Is um, in the West. Where is it? Wisconsin? No, Wisconsin? No. Oh, Washington? Nope. Time. Wow. Wow. I expected you to get that one. I can't think of, because uh, finding, I, every time I thought of one, I was like, oh, there's like. Yeah. There's two. So they? Utah with Utah Jazz. Oh, my God. <laughs> Oklahoma. I was going to say Oklahoma. Oklahoma I Thunder. Should've. Oregon. Oregon. See, I didn't, th- I didn't think Oklahoma had any. Oh, uh, And yeah. then I, Oregon, who's in Oregon? The Portland yeah. is it Trailblazers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then New Jersey with New Jersey Devils. Wow, they only have one. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. That's what I was hoping that. New Jersey didn't come into my head, honestly. I, I was, was hoping my clue with New York would kind yeah, of help you with that no, one. No, it didn't. New, yeah. I wouldn't have got. I th- The only ones I thought of were Oregon and Oklahoma. I didn't think of, I didn't even think of Utah and I didn't even think of New Jersey. I don't think I got New Jersey when I did this on my own. This one's a little bit of wordplay. <laughs> Can you name the five NFL teams that have three syllables in their name? So just not like the mascot, like the whole name is three syllables. Not like the state or city or anything, just like. So like Steelers t- would be two syllables. Yes. Okay. So three. Wow, I'm already thinking this is like. I'm already thinking of a lot that are two. Three is a lot. Patriots. Yes, that's one. Um, Buccaneer, Buccaneers. Yep. That was like 49ers. That's too many. <laughs> Time. So I messed up. There was only four, but. Oh, but still. Um, the Arizona Cardinals. Cardinals. I would never. I, I That one I wouldn't have gotten. That's fair. Yeah. It's difficult to pronounce it like that. And then the Washington Commanders. <laughs> Classic. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I feel better. I feel better about it then. Yeah. Okay. Cardinals, I wouldn't, I would never have, I would never have said that. That's fair. I kind of forget about them sometimes as a football team. Yeah, fair. 
But okay, last question. There are a lot of answers, <laughs> but you should be able to run through them fairly quickly. Okay. So I, there's a couple that I think you might forget, but because of the NHL, but okay. we'll see. Okay. So can you name the eight sports teams across all the all the leagues that start with a vowel? Did the mascot? Or like the like Arizona Coyotes, like not Arizona, like just the yeah. mascot. Okay, to start with a vowel. Yes. Oh God. Okay. Yes. Oh my God. There's so many teams though. Um. Start listing them. I know. I'm well. I'm trying to like. I have to think of one that starts with a vowel. Bro, I'm I'm like not even joking. I might not get any of these. You have 30 seconds. I know. I don't. I don't think I'm gonna get any of them. But well, the Eagles. Yes. Philadelphia Eagles. Yes. Um, no more in the NFL. Okay. There's four in the MLB <laughs> and three in the NHL. Avalanche, Colorado Avalanche. Yes, that was time, but I feel like you can keep. I'm gonna, I feel like I you can get a couple more. Going. Yeah, Avalanche. The MLB one is. I can't believe I haven't. Oh, the um, Los Angeles Angels. Yep. I was gonna say I can't believe I the Oakland A's. Yep. So yeah, two from the MLB and two from NHL. So it's just oh the Orioles, Baltimore Orioles. Yep. Two from the NHL, though. One's in Canada. The... I've, I think I've thought of every team that's not the one. Because I was like, the Canadians, the Senators, the Maple Leafs, and whoever else is up there. There's a few more than that, but... Um, <laughs> the Calgary Flames is also up there. It is true. <laughs> yeah. I was just, I was like, there's the other one. So I'm like cornering in on everyone that doesn't start with a vowel. Connor McDavid plays there. I'm not, I like, I can see the jersey, but I can't think of the name. Oh, got it. Edmonton Oilers. Yep. Oilers. Um, so and then MLB. No. Yeah. You have one NHL, NHL and one MLB. MLB left. Wow. This is really hard. I'm kind of surprised Me too. by you. Me I'll be too, honest. Low key. Where's the, where's the NHL team? They're in the Northeast, so that should help you. <laughs> it definitely should. I don't know if it, if it is up there. New York. New York. Islanders. Yep. They have one MLB team left. One MLB team. Does Yankees count? No. No. It's in the South. The Astros. Yes. <laughs> yeah, that was no, Yeah, that was hard. I struggled with the Orioles. I did forget. I did forget them when I did it. And I think I forgot the Islanders as well. I think maybe, I think if I was looking at, if I had a map in front of me, it, I might, it might help a little bit more. I don't, because then I could just, fair. I think, maybe, but. So he, is this the one where he like goes up on the street and asks people or? It's a group of friends that does it together just in their oh, room. Okay, so okay. like when I was watching, like I didn't, there was, there wasn't a map or anything. Gotcha. And like he didn't have a map. Yeah, that was, yeah, that was really tough. I think, I think what helps for me with a lot of these is that I know a ton of NHL teams, I think. I guess they're, yeah, those are like the killers. Those are usually those. the ones that are more niche in these questions. So that yeah. usually that usually is my, like, advantage. I'm definitely not a visual person. I have a hard time, like, mapping things out of my head. And, like, even when I was trying to picture the map, like, <laughs> when I when you were like, oh, it's in the Northeast, I was like, oh, I can think of. You just forgot what I states, forgot are, in what states are in the Northeast. <laughs> like, I, I was like, I can see. Like Boston, Connecticut, and New Jersey, and everything else was like 
blurry. And I was like, I, I don't even know what what's That's states a really are out there. interesting choice of states in the Northeast. Well, I don't know. So that was that was all I had. And then I was like, oh, Maine. I also knew Maine. I'm like, <laughs> great. That that's helpful because um, nothing's up there. So I could like, if you gave me a map of the U.S., I could label all the states and capitals, for example. I would hope so. But some, oh, most people. I know a lot can't. of people can't, but I hold you to a higher standard. Well, thank you. <laughs> but so I could do that. Like I could point out, I could write all that out and do that within like a few minutes. But but yeah, picturing it in my head is not as I'm, I'm learning is not as easy. Thank you for listening to the seventh episode of The Athlete and the NARP. We hope you enjoyed our discussion about the intricacies of player safety and the responsibility of organizations to prioritize it, as well as our Fun Friday segment where I quiz Claire on the big four sports teams' logos and their locations. Make sure to follow us on Instagram and TikTok at The Athlete and the NARP. You can contact us by email at theathleteandthenarp at gmail.com with content suggestions, clarifications, or questions. Until next time, I'm Claire Fenton. And I'm Jenna Daly. And this has been The Athlete and the NARP. NARP.